Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360, the podcast solving today's most pressing issues in the AI arthritis community. We invite you all to the table, where together we face the daily challenges of autoimmune and autoinflammatory arthritis. Every Sunday, join our fellow patient co-hosts as they lead discussions in the patient community, as well as consult with stakeholders worldwide to solve the problems that matter most. Whether you are a loved one, a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table. everyone, and welcome to ULAR 2020. My name is Tiffany Westridge-Robertson. I am the CEO of International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis, or AI Arthritis for short. And I am also a person living with rheumatic diseases. Non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis is, I guess, the main one, and also a sprinkle of some other things, which we know is not that uncommon. And I have friends. I have friends at ULAR. Hi, friends. Hi. There. <laughs> Hi there. Um, I'm Deb Constein. I am a patient with rheumatoid arthritis. I've had it since I was 13 years old. So nice long time of having this disease and um, a lot of other little things sprinkled in there as well. So I'm happy to be here. Patrice. Hi, everybody. My name is Patrice Johnson and I have RA, maybe. I don't know anymore. <laughs> <laughs> working on that. Um, and I have some sprinklings too. <laughs> we're, we're sprinkles. We're all sprinkles. <laughs> yeah. I think of ice cream when we say sprinkles. So that's a happy thought. Right? Maybe Kroger's, Kroger's, whatever those are. I don't have ice cream, but I do have wine. Yeah. And that, yeah. that is because this is, um, we are trying to make this as realistic as possible when we get together at conferences, which again, we are attending ULAR, the European League Against Rheumatism, their scientific congress, which was supposed to happen in Frankfurt, Germany. And so usually in the past, Deb and I have been the ones historically that go to most of the conferences. Sometimes we have others with us, but after a long day or a long couple days of attending sessions, we sit down, we relax over dinner and a little bit of vino, and we talk about what we've learned. And we're bringing you along with that Let's just give you a little bit of background what exactly that we're doing here. So as we said, the ULAR Congress, which is one of the two main scientific conferences in rheumatology that happen annually, always is in Europe <laughs> and it happens to, sometime in June usually. And then you have the American College of Rheumatology scientific meeting that happens towards the end of the year. We attend both of those. And at each of these conferences, is where you learn all of the latest research that's happening in the rheumatology community. So it used to be specifically geared towards rheumatologists and researchers, but over the last few years, it has been a lot more patient-friendly and particularly in, at ULAR because the way that ULAR is set up is they have three pillars. They have one for the researchers, they have one for the healthcare professionals, and they have a third pillar for patient-patient organizations. So 
there, it has been a little bit more patient friendly than when we attend uh, the ACR. But as we've said before, that will change if we have anything to do with it. <laughs> but that's for a whole other discussion. Our discussion today, we are going to be reviewing one very specific session that we attended, Treat to Target. And I thought maybe, Deb, you could just give us an overview of what that even means. Sure. Um, as far as Treat to Target goes, Treat to Target involves a lot of shared decision making. So what that means is it's the doctor's opinions as well as the patient's opinions, and both are applied together to further the decisions um, as far as what they're going to come to. There are a lot of goals as far as what they actually go towards with this. Now, remission is the ultimate goal for most of it. That is changing a little bit. And um, I think Tiffany might talk a little bit about that later, but there's a lot as far as adjusting it. So if you're, you, you look at the problem of how many joints are involved in things like that, and certain medications are added. And if nothing is happening towards, you know, making that better, then they add new medications to your list of medications or try different medications, which I'm sure most of us are used to that as far as how that goes. So that's where we are today with treat to target. And right. this is not a new term. You, you, as a person living with rheumatic diseases, if um, you are, are participating, very likely have heard this yourself, but you may not have really even realized what that meant. So Deb, thank you for giving us a little overview of that because there are some very key elements. Now, Treat to Target came about around a decade ago or so. Uh, mm -hmm. Prior to this, the way that rheumatologists would address treatment was a pyramid. And so essentially it was exercise, takes some over-the-counter medications. I know, Deb, you might be able to relate a little bit to this. Yeah. And then it was, okay, well, if you're not doing better then, let's move over to a DMARD, which is a disease-modifying agent. And we're typically right. talking about like a methotrexate, for example. A lot of patients are familiar with that. Now, you have to remember, too, it wasn't until the late 1990s where biologics came to market. But what happens every time something comes to market, it is an innovation. There is no research there to prove its safety or efficacy. So, it, you know, you're injecting yourself with something. It's got live you know, molecules in it. I mean, it, it's, it's scary. And so that goes on kind of that, uh, that high top of the pyramid. And so it wasn't until you've, you weren't doing well with DMARDs till you then went to the biologics. So as research started to demonstrate, wow, these, these things are great. <laughs> they're, they're really being quite effective for our population. The idea was, well, let's see here. We're having really great outcomes. Patients are, are for the first time in history, are really doing well and, and getting better. Why don't we try to squish the pyramid and have an earlier intervention? And that's where the, it started again roughly a decade ago. This is airing in, in 2020. And so since then, we've been going to these conferences and we're hearing all about the great research that's happening. Is it working? Is it not? And it seems that yes, it is. And what it means is that early intervention. So and that is truly where my history goes, because until I, the biologics came along, I was having a lot of structural damage. Since biologics have come about, the, the amount of disease progression has really stopped. Right now I'm fixing what 
you know, the first 15 years or 20 years of my disease progression caused. So I am all about early detection and getting into the medic, the deep medications right away, because for someone to actually go through the process that I did, I mean, I was on gold therapy for goodness sakes, way back when, and all that kind of stuff, which brings up, you know, we've got a friend, Therese, <laughs> who talks about it too. Shout She's, out. Yeah, Therese. I don't know if she's tuned in yet or not, yeah. but she probably I, would be talking if she was. <laughs> yes, she would. <laughs> um, not in a she, bad way. <laughs> no, but same thing. You know, all these medications that they tried, they didn't have the same effect that the biologics have on, especially even on my disease progression. And you so, both are disabled, technically, have a level of yes. disability. Yeah. So whether it is it is formal or not. Absolutely. Because of everything. I mean, you look at my hands alone and you can see that and my feet, I'm in the process of going through surgeries to try to fix those up. But again, they'll never be the same again. <laughs> right. Right. Patrice, did you have anything that you wanted to, to add? I don't, we don't want to dominate. Yeah. No, <laughs> conversation. no I, I'm on a steroid. So that, you know, the, the world of biologics and early treatment have always been a factor the very first appointment I had after it was discovered that I had something like RA, the first rheumatologist I had says, we're starting you on this immediately. But also, um, I'm a little bit of a different anomaly because I was diagnosed later in life, which is, I wouldn't say rare, but it's different than people who have been diagnosed like 30s and, and in their 40s. Mm -hmm. So I was in my mid 50s. So uh, it's kind of been a different story. And I have, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I will ever be on biologics, but uh, for now, my medication is working and I, it's I, holding. I, it's so great. <laughs> but, but that's but that's really interesting. And that's great yeah. to mention. And I guess we should also preface by saying we are reviewing research that is from a scientific largely medical community. There are some non-pharmacologic sessions that are there, but for the most part, they're medical and we're talking a lot about treatment. So by talking about this, we are in no way, shape or form suggesting what is better or worse for any, any one person. And that's the idea of Treat to Target. And in that session, one of the things that I remember thinking was really cool about the whole Treat to Target is that it's really about making a decision of what your disease is going to look like three months from now, mm -hmm. six months from now, a year from now. It goes so far away from that pyramid that we, we mentioned earlier, where it was starting with the, the exercise and the diet and the sleep and you know the, the over-the-counters, to we know now that research is showing that this combination of therapeutics based on your disease presentation right now is the best. And that's why some patients will start on DMARDs. Some, depending on their severity, will skip DMARDs and go right to biologics. Some will have dual, the DMARD, the methotrexate, and the biologic. But I thought that's just really interesting because you sit there and you're, it's shared decision-making, like Deb said, talking to your rheumatologist about yeah. what are my goals in six months. And depending on what we, what we want to achieve, they'll put on, and for you, Patrice, it wasn't biologics. That wasn't the right treat to target, but it doesn't mean that you are not being treated in that same manner. Yes. 
Yes. So I think that's important to point out. So I'm glad that we said that because it's not, it doesn't, treat the target does not mean it's biologics. That's not the only way that you can, you can, you can treat the target. So, so I did, I did want to bring that up, but there was some interesting research that, that they were showing in and Deb, you you had talked to us a lot about the juvenile arthritis because right. the, the title of this was, I think, treat to target adults and children. Or so. so they was definitely talking about a little, a little bit of both and then comparing them. Deb, will you tell everybody a little bit about the research for the, the juvenile? Sure. Um, as far as um, they were talking about some of the barriers to implementation with the treat target and clinical practices, and they were talking about some of the the reluctance of clinicians to actually perform formal joint counts with adults. And that was actually one of the things that I saw besides where I'm reading now, but it talked about specifically with the adult patients, the practitioner didn't want to do formal joint counts with adults as much as they did with the juvenile. They also talked about the parents. Now the parents, they were making the assumptions Parents are the ones reporting to the clinician or the rheumatologist for the children. Some of these children are only like 12 months old, 18 months old. So they're not verbalizing what hurts or anything like that. So, I mean, you've got you've got the parents making their choice on how they want to report back. And it's, you know, basically how the parents are reporting it. So that is interesting in itself, I find, because, I mean, parents are really good at reporting that, but again, they might be also taking their own version of what's happening. So you don't know exactly what's going on. They also talked about for the juveniles that there was a lack of guidelines on optimal tapering of um, medications and withdrawing from treatment after achieving a inactive disease. So the patient isn't having as many symptoms on their medication. So there wasn't necessarily a lot of guidelines. There are with some of the other diseases in adults that they do have guidelines for that now, now which again, like Tiffany says, what? Because <laughs> you don't hear about, you know, the medications going away. So we'll talk more about that later. But um, yeah, that was one big thing. And um, they also talked about the comparison of the pediatric and the adult definitions. Now, one thing in particular was for adults, they talk about a tender joint count of less than one. And for the juveniles, they called it active joint count of zero. So, I mean, that is interesting in itself because again, you're talking about active joints versus tender joints. So, you know, that I, right there. I tend, I tend to think that when my joint is tender and hurts that it is active. So as a person living with these diseases, I just would like to explore more clarification on that. Yes. Personally. Oh, exactly. (laughs) Maybe I'm using the wrong terminology when I'm speaking to my doctor. Um, But I did, I found that interesting too. Some of you may have heard this phrase before. You might've heard ACR 20 or ACR 50 or 70 or 90. And again, that was a term about a decade ago. It was thrown around a lot. And what that really means is ACR stands for the American College of Rheumatology. And when they started doing the research for treat to target or to figure out if certain 
aggressive treatments would help to have better outcomes and possible remission in patients. What they would do is they would compare your improvement in percentages. And so ACR 20 is 20% improvement. 50 is 50%, 70, 70%, 90 is 90%. So those are the levels. And I actually, I actually remember doing a presentation and it was about 2010. So it was about a decade ago. And, and I was doing a presentation to a pharmaceutical company and we were they were asking, what do we, what do we want? Because they use that criteria in clinical trials. Because if a drug is showing that it has 20% efficacy, then it's showing improvement. It's showing a level of improvement. And I remember saying, I don't give a crap about your ACR 20. (laughs) And the whole room kind of went, wah, wah. And and I was like, no, I'm just saying, what about ACR 50 or 70 or 90? Like, you know, I get it. You have to start somewhere. And back then... That was a good target. It's kind of like we're talking about treat to target, right? We said, try to improve in this month. And then, you know, you go to the next month. But yeah, I, I just said to him, that's no, we got to eat. We got to aim higher than 20%. <laughs> now, Patrice, you had actually said that you had just learned about those percentages. What did that mean to you? So when I went on the American College of Rheumatology webpage, and it's the improvement levels. So I guess if you're having, you know, a bad flare for months, weeks and weeks, so you're in like the 20% or maybe for me, like currently right now, I'd probably say I was in maybe the 70. And of course that could all change next month. We don't know, but uh, I I thought that was really interesting. I, but I was also trying to figure out how do they measure that? And maybe that's a topic for another day. Well, so. no, no, I, I can actually answer that. So what that really means, it's, it, yes, it does mean improvement, but it's not so much about the improvement of how you're feeling necessarily like, oh, I'm having a good day on a scale of one to 10 today, I'm a seven. It's not quite that. What it mostly is for is tracking the efficacy of that treatment you're on. So if you go back to your rheumatologist in three months, you know how you go in the rheumatologist's office and they have you fill out those forms? If you scale one to 10 this day or this week or this month, what were you? So those are disease activity scores, essentially. And they're measuring how well you're doing. So not just today, but, but generally. So they do have measurement tools. And then they also will combine your blood level, inflammation. So you might hear that as your ESR or CRPs, all these, these fancy acronyms where they're, they're essentially measuring the inflammation levels. So all of that is clinically showing how you're doing. And that's really what, when you're talking about the ACR 2040, it's mostly in comparison to how you're doing on your medication. Mm -hmm. And that's why they use it in clinical trials. So in the clinical trial, if you were out on there for your medication, they would be testing all of those clinical features. You'd be filling out those forms. You'd be getting your blood work. And then they would say at the end, 40% of the people in this trial achieved ACR 50, 20% achieved whatever. And so that's, that's how it goes. But that's important. I think as patients to understand that term or those terminologies, because that is so ingrained into everything about our treatments. And we should be able to at least be able to understand that on the same level, I think, as our doctors. 
So one of the things that when we're talking about treat to target and we'll go back to the, the JIA, the juvenile, when they were talking about the specific line items, if you will, on the goals for treatment, yeah. it was to control the signs and symptoms, prevent structural damage, avoid comorbidity conditions, growth and development, quality of life, and social participation. Yeah. So, I mean, are you able to do activities like everybody, like they don't ask us all that time. Right. That's exactly what I said. Maybe they say that they can go skiing or something like that. I mean, not that I, I but I get it. I I completely understand how, when you're growing up, I mean, think of, I mean, and Deb, you were there, you had, you had, you were a a teen when you had onset. So I can see where for anybody, that's a huge adjustment period in your lives. And, And, you know, I had onset at 37. So it was an adjustment for me as well, but I had already some established my life. So my social issues were more about who am I now, not who will I be. Right. I mean, I remember, I, I mean, I was third chair flute out of 30 flutes and that came to a crashing halt. I was a competitive swimmer and I became the manager of the swim team because I couldn't with fatigue and everything else. I just couldn't. And I was in so much pain. I remember in, I mean, I was freshman in high school. So I remember in high school, I never wore shorts. I never, cause my knees were like huge and I was embarrassed by that. So I always wore jeans and everyone's like, why don't you wear shorts? It's hot. And I'm like, yeah, no. And I, you know, I could never squat down. So I was always either sitting or standing. I, I couldn't squat or get down to the floor or get back up for that matter. So I remember all of those things and the adjustments and coming to terms. I I was a full-grown adult in probably only maybe 10 years ago. I kept my flute until then because I couldn't give it back or give it away or anything. Um, I just kept it. And then I tried to put my fingers back on the keys and my fingers didn't line up at all. And I could, I mean, seriously, I couldn't physically even put my fingers on the keys. So I, at that point, I finally made peace with it and gave it to our pastor's wife and her daughter. They both played flute, but were never able to play together. So Mm. that actually gave me some personal (laughs) highlight and giving away. And I was actually, I was ready to. (laughs) Yeah. Well, well, that was the timing. I was going to ask both of you. I'm just curious. I, I mentioned that list. So yeah. Um, I know that's what is is there right now for ju- for juvenile idiopathic arthritis, and it was somewhat different for adults. Like like I said, the social, yes. to my knowledge wasn't yeah. no. wasn't on there. Well, if you had to pick, and and anyone who's listening as well, if you were going to say treat to target, what do I envision for me six months from now? What would you want on your treat to target list? I mean, the structural damage is already here, yeah. and it's, I don't even can't even count that anymore. I would like to avoid more comorbidities and mm-hmm. control signs and symptoms. So I guess that would probably be my one of my things. Yeah. What about you, Patrice? Yeah, same thing. Um, quality of life. I love to travel a lot overseas. I'm hoping I have a bucket list of places to go, and I'm hoping I can get everything off my bucket list. But um, it, as well as the comorbidities, I mean... I have a few. I mean, a lot of them were a complete surprise, and I will just share real quick. Um, In 2018, I was discovered with uh, severe hearing loss. 
which is a comorbidity of rheumatoid arthritis or something along that lines. I never would have imagined that, but I knew I was having trouble hearing people on the phone and watching TV and also people speaking. So that just blew me away when I was at the ENT's doctors and he showed me my scores and it was amazing. So it's like, what is next for me? (laughs) And um, I'm a little bit older than the both of you. So I have to factor in my age as well and and pushing forward. I mean, I hope I can continue to do what I'm doing right now, but um, the unknown, I don't like unknowns. I'm just one of those person probably along with everybody else, but I don't like unknowns. So um, that just drives me crazy, but I guess that's just life. But Mm -hmm. You know, something that I want to bring it back to the research here, and that's kind of what we want to do here is, is these are, you know, we're patients, we are reporting research, but we're also talking about how the research is relevant in our lives because that is extremely important part of continuing research. So I'm going to bring it back to a little bit of of technical again. And uh, one of the things that when they talk about the treat to target and what we just mentioned, these goals for treatment, these are really outcome measures. So what that means is they are specific line items that can be measured, that you can tick a box and say, we achieved that. Mm -hmm. And the way that outcome measures have changed over the last several years has a lot to do with with the group that Deb and I are both affiliated with, and that is OMERACT, which is Outcome Measures in Rheumatology. And they started in 2002, bringing patients to the table alongside researchers and they create domains or these, these kind of, it's called an onion. So it's like the most important thing to a patient's in the middle of the onion and then the secondary and then the tertiary and it goes out Mm -hmm. from there. And so they are responsible, for example, for adding fatigue to rheumatoid arthritis as a measurable outcome because patients were like, Hey, it's kind of (laughs) big. That's the set suckers in the middle. And so the good thing about the treat to target when they're saying shared decision-making and they were creating these outcome measures or these domains of controlling symptoms, structural damage, avoiding comorbidities, growth and development, quality of life, social participation, those in some way had to come from the patient or the parent saying this is an important element because I don't know why social participation would have made it if it wasn't. Yeah. Again, travel like Patrice. I mean, that Mm -hmm. is a huge thing and being social, that's a social thing, you know, again, being socially participating in life. You can also be at home and participating in life, but you could also be on the couch covered with a blanket and not participating in life too. Mm-hmm. So, But, you know, I think that if somebody would have asked me when I very first got diagnosed, what are, what are your goals? And I kind of, and I could see a list and it had yeah. all of these things in it. I think when I first got diagnosed, I, I wouldn't have called it social participation as much as social well-being maybe because it was that whole moment of who am I now? Oh my gosh, I don't even know myself anymore. So it it is a psychological. And I I just think that recognizing that I wouldn't have it on now. So Mm -hmm. I think that when we think about treat to target and we're starting to evolve into this individualized and in precision medicine and personalized treatments, we should also be thinking about the phase that a patient is in. 
because yeah. that might not be relevant. Now I could see where it would be for, for kids regardless yes. of, yeah. of age, but I'm yeah. just, just my point being food for thought as we move forward and start getting more and more involved, that that's, that's something important. You already mentioned it a little bit, Deb, you were talking about the differences between the pediatric and adult. Yeah. And you, you had mentioned the active versus tender and swollen joint counts, but, right. but that also is listed on the comparison of pediatric and adult definitions of remission. Right. That's true. That's true. So let's end this treat to target part ending in kind of remission. Let's talk a little bit about that. And then we'll go into the, the last leg of this. Sure. So, well, first of all, Deb, you had a list, which has a lot of different things of remission. So let's start there. Sure. Some of the definitions, and this was actually a list that Susie Palmer, shout out, she put together and it was related to a lupus discussion. But one thing in particular that Susie pointed out to us was that there were so many different definitions of remission. And, you know, right here alone, it talks about complete remission. So complete remission is there's no clinical or serological activity. So that means through your lab results, your lab results come back fairly normal. And also, let's see, they talk about no corticosteroids and immunopressive free patients, but they do say that the Plaquenil is allowed for complete remission. So for a lupus patient, it would mean no other medications. So you're having no swelling, no um, tender joints, and you're doing really well, but you're still allowed to have your Plaquenil. There's another one, clinical remission off of corticosteroids. So off your prednisone and things like that. Another one, clinical remission on corticosteroids. And I saw uh, a clinical, uh, an MRI remission. Yes. Uh, again, so many different kinds of remission. And again, whatever, again, I've been having this disease for 38 years and I have never been in complete total remission ever ever in all these years. And I don't think I ever will, but again, it's the difference of what remission is to that person. And I think my definition of what remission is, is still being on my medications, but not being in serious pain and being able to do activities that I want to do, like weed my garden and clean the house and things like that. Stupid stuff, you know, that kind of thing. Therese, what about you? It's, I guess it's kind of strange, I guess, in 2017, that whole year. Now, I, my rheumatologist never mentioned the word remission, but at the beginning of the year, I had my blood work done and the results were going in the better direction. <laughs> then in a couple of months, I had it done again and they kept going down and down and down. Down as in like in a better direction? Better direction. Okay. okay. I had no, that whole year, I had no pain. And in the fall of 2017, when I saw my rheumatologist, I said, I've seen the results online. What does this mean? And he said, well, you know, he kind of danced around the whole thing. But he said, I don't know what to tell you. He said, what are you doing different? I said, nothing <laughs> different. And he said, well, I have no explanation as to why your test results look like you do not have rheumatoid arthritis. I was blown away. But the, throughout that whole year, I began to taper off the medication. And I'm still on that lower dose as of now. But 
That was for a whole year. Mm. How do we explain that? Yeah. I did want to also bring back the research that we were uh, talking about here and the treat to target outcome measures. And one of the things when we're talking about remission in particular Mm -hmm. is that the disease activity score, if you think of a scale of one to 10 and different parts of your disease have an assigned number value. Mm -hmm. So for example, in the research that we were watching in the session for treat target, they were talking about juvenile idiopathic arthritis, Mm -hmm. fever had a four because they feel that that is such a diagnostic recognizable feature that it deserves higher point values. So what happens is there's different disease activity scores and we don't need to get into all of those, but there's just there, it's just like there's many kinds of remission. There's many kinds of disease activity scores. And the real thing for us as patients to understand is they're numbered. And so your disease activity score if it's on a scale of one to 10, when you get into that under three, like you get into the 2.6, 2.5, that's when it's looking pretty good for you. And then they consider clinical remission as 1.6 or under. So, you know, that could mean like, like Deb was talking about, there are different criteria for what remission is and just even children and adults, because basically the one for children is very strict, no joint pain. You know, all your lab work is negative. It's very strict. Whereas it's a lot more lenient for adults, which, you know, why, I don't know. Is it because of delay in diagnosis? Is it, why do, why is our remission not zero? I, right, exactly. <laughs> I'm not sure about that, but it is something to understand that on that, that kind of one, one to 10 scale. So it'd be interesting Patrice, when you say, well, you were able to taper off, my guess is you were in that two, you know, range probably. Right. And if they, and if they say, and if a doctor says you're in clinical remission, what they're really saying is your disease activity level is 1.6 or lower. So that really begs the question, what is remission? So clinical remission is one thing. And a doctor can say you're in remission, but if I'm still feeling like crap every day, Yeah, I'm not in remission. Now, what you just listened to was actually an excerpt from a live YouTube Go With Us to ULAR 2020 that aired on our YouTube channel. And there is a little bit more. And don't you just hate it when you get to the end of an episode and you hear... (laughs) to be continued. (laughs) Well, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be to be continued. We did have a nice discussion there, but if you want to hear more, there's still a little bit more. Now, while we do not have a direct link to YouTube quite yet, because we still need to get 100 subscribers, it's brand new, we can tell you to go to our website, aiarthritis.org backslash podcast. And there you're going to see all the latest episodes. If you just click on this one, the go to ULAR treat to target, there's going to be a link for you to watch the whole episode on YouTube if you so choose. Also, if you want to get more involved with some of these research discussions, you can still continue to go with us to ULAR and that will be available through August 2020. So if you'd like to learn a little bit more about that, you can also go to our website at arthritis.org 
And right there on the front page, click that button to sign up to go with us to ULAR, and we'll send you an email with more information. We're also inviting you to join AI Arthritis Voices online site. It's exciting. It's our sister site to this talk show. And that is where if you are a person living with these diseases or the parent of a juvenile patient, you can join me and all of the other co-hosts inside this private space to talk more about each one of these episodes. Because you have to remember, the only way we can solve the problems of tomorrow is to make sure we all have a seat at the table. So I sure hope you sign up for AR Arthritis Voices online site so that we can continue this conversation. AI Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Find us on the web at www.aiarthritis.org. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI arthritis news and events. 